Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. You think I'll be on my boat and fishing in early June, uh, Mr. Vice President? I I think, uh, honestly, if you look at the trends today, uh, that I think by Memorial Day weekend, we will largely have uh, this uh, coronavirus epidemic behind us. He's so there right. you have it, Mike Murphy. He was right. He <laughs> was right. He, did, he never said a year. Yeah, no, I mean, no. Why be pinned down by details? You know, exactly. Away. It, I mean, it looks like he could be, you know, we're inching toward him being right about all that. This will be a good chapter in his new book if he can actually get the deal per the headlines. So we should talk about all of that and, where, you know, how the 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 country and how it's reacting to the virus uh, is impacting on politics. And to, to have that conversation, we have a very special guest. Now, I'm going to give you a clue and see if you can guess who it is. Oh, there's an east wind blowing, I believe. <laughs> who could it be? There the one. Is, yes. The only. Rahm the Emanuel. Mayor, the man. Yeah. The great Rahm Emanuel. Welcome to Hex on Tap, Rahm. <laughs> <laughs> I, never, I didn't realize Jeopardy changed its uh, opening music. <laughs> well, we're all bowing here, and we're very happy to have you. Yes, we are. Thanks, Murph. So, listen, guys. You know, there's a lot of lot of shit going on globally. You know, to, uh, we we have the ongoing uh, situation in the Middle East. President just announced he's meeting. He's going to meet with Putin. Uh, have a summit with Putin. There's a a lot of things going on. The 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 uh, Belarus situation, but uh, you know. Joe Biden's approval rating is 53% now, just as it was the day he took office. Uh, very little appears to move. And I, and I wonder whether the virus is sort of the controlling factor right now or whether we're just so uh, polarized as a country that nothing moves. We're dug in. You know, the, the old 60 is the new 52. Uh, his numbers are a lot lower than other presidents at this time, but there's just less room to operate. Except for, except for the last time. tribal. Well, yeah, I don't even I don't, I refuse now to refer to the orange menace as president. <laughs> Temporary occupant of White House. <laughs> but Ron, what do you think? I mean, I think there's three things both parties have, and I assume you're saying going into the midterm. The Republicans have history, they have redistricting, and they have restrictive voting. The Democrats have uh I think a, a strong economy a popular president, and uh, a popular program. And I'm kind of a product of Clinton and Obama. If you looked at the midterms of both 94 and 2010, the recession, quote-unquote, by economists had ended, but the recovery had not begun, and they were in the low 40s. I think you look at the economy, you look forward 12 months, 
you're going to have an incredibly strong employment wage growth economy. And I don't know what President Biden's number will be, but it won't, there will be a floor under it. It's hard to see how he goes below 48.51, given the economy. And that is for the, re, uh, for the midterms, one of the most important things for Democrats. And I also think what's always constantly lost is, yes, you have the pandemic, you have the economy, but his agenda gets unbelievably strong support among Democrats, over 50% of independents, and a quarter to a third of Republicans. That is a good thing for Democrats going into what historically is about 28 to 32 seat loss in midterms. So that's kind of how I, uh, you know, look at it. You see our old buddy uh, Larry Summers piece in the mm -hmm. post today about inflation. Yeah. This is what Murphy's been saying. From I'm the all wound up. Larry and I are both very concerned as leading economists. Uh, you know, uh, Rob, where I differ with you on that, uh, that excellent bit of spin there is one, I wish Biden had a 60% approval rating right now, simply because I think for year one, it would be good for the country to actually have some of the other tribe give him a pat on the back for showing up at work every day, doing a pretty good job at COVID and actually acting like president. But the question will be what that number is like next year. And I think it's a real jump ball between will we have, you know, um, that economic strength and real wages going up like you talk about, or will dumping, depending on how this week and other things turn out, trillions of dollars into a 6% unemployment economy just blow the inflation fear thing through the roof. That'll be the, that's what we'll be talking about Penn style a year from now. And that'll be the midterms other than if the Democrats can overcome the headwind they've got from redistricting history and all the stuff you mentioned. You can look at whether Ronald Reagan in 82, when he lost uh, 28 House seats, et cetera. You look at this, you have a situation where the president's basic uh, will have a full recovery in his midterm rather than in his reelect. And on the economy part, and I've read Larry Summers' piece today, I actually talked to Larry last week, I would just say that a big part of that message was less the Biden administration and more the Federal Reserve. As it relates to the Biden administration, it was about you know, making sure that none of this blocks what you have to do from uh, what and what the Republicans are blocking right now, which is the infrastructure investments and the job training and educational piece of the president's agenda. But I think 53 percent to get to your one point in today's uh, politics, as you said, 53 is the new 60. He is still getting a good portion of what I call soft or what I call Biden Republicans, and they continue to support him. And as long as the Republican Party continues to be the party of what uh, was once referred to as the Visigoths and the knuckle draggers and trying to revisit 2020, that's going to provide an opportunity for Biden to have a pretty broad coalition and the Democrats going into the midterm. I will say it's a hell of a jump ball. 53 is the new 60. I guess you're looking at, at that, Ram, as a positive thing. Uh, it also is a reflection of the fact that we're a, a deeply polarized tribal country and that just by dint of having i mean the fact that 70 percent of republicans don't even think the guy won legitimately it's a it's a source of concern that, that number's down to 55 percent. so the the forces of rationality are moving up i like to say that 47 percent think he did win and that's that's progress but to, to both of your points if it is is dug in that 53 is the new 60 then 
if this economic super comeback occurs, and I'm dubious now, I think they're making real bad policy decisions over in Biden world, it's going to be a hell of a slap fight between space laser, knucklehead, incompetent Republicans and policy that has an economic potential backlash next year. I mean, if the Republicans could take sanity pills and run a principled right of center <laughs> opposition, play the tax playbook smart in the suburbs, play the $4 trillion in spending, take some of the egregious stuff like some of these, these human infrastructure things they've stuck in, I have no doubt they'd win the midterms. I think even acting like idiots, they're probably going to win the House. But, you know, they are ceding a lot of room to Biden to really operate, particularly if the bad economic stuff, the inflation fears like Summers and Steve Ratner and other even Democrats have, don't happen. Then you're right. They might overcome history. But Murph, you, I think you would agree. Right now, you look on the split screen. You have the Democrats talking about either COVID or the economy and an agenda to invest. And you have Republicans re- constantly revisiting either 2020 or caught in this vice between Trump and truth. And they keep picking Trump. And then you have something like Congresswoman Green, who associates masks with literally where, you know, uh, the Holocaust and wearing the Star of David as if that's a, a sign. I mean, I, and then it takes 24 hours for the Republican Party to come to the conclusion, maybe we should call this outlandish. I'm sorry. That's not where the American people are when it comes to an agenda about going forward. Yeah, look, I agree with that. They're playing losing ball to the point of shame. I mean, the, the Marjorie, in the old days, even in the not-so-old days uh, with Steve King in Iowa, they would pack her up in a crate and ship her to Nowhereville. I did a few of those primaries for the leadership back in the day where we'd go bump off a moron congressman somewhere. Now, it's unbelievable. The inmates are running the asylum, and that is taking away the ability to have a principled opposition to the opportunities, at least ideologically, that, that, that Biden in his, in his quest for FDR 2.2 has given us. It's one of the many tragedies of the current Republican Party. We actually have that clip. I'm sort of reluctant to play it, the one that Rom mentioned, and maybe I won't, of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, Dan Pfeiffer wrote, a, I thought, a very good piece this morning on basically talking about how liberals are assisting her crews and the whole crew by retweeting their stuff and you know, torquing up the algorithms uh, and ra- and raising a, and raising a boatload of money for them, but the the fact is, she is raising a boatload of money, and she is just by being out outrageous. It's sort of the Matt Gates without the underage women formula for you know just piss everybody off and sing from the Trump hymnal, and you know she's raising a lot of money. She'll never be beaten in her district. They're stuck with her forever. And this is, and you've got leadership that's intimidated by all this. McCarthy won't take her on. Uh, And, you know, they are caught, they are trapped. They are trapped between trying to go on the offensive against Biden on things that they legitimately have differences with him on, and then trying to appease Trump and live in the land of uh, the fantasy of of 2020. Well, it's even more than that. They're trapped by their own cowardice. They're choosing to be trapped. And politicians generally aren't that brave, particularly when it comes to primaries, but they're choosing. Still, you know, it's funny. I thought the other day, if 100 years from now, the aliens are picking through all the wreckage, and they find the the record of of the last week. Yeah, they may be coming sooner, according to the, the Pentagon. Yeah, I think I just heard them land on my roof, so I'll be quick. But I thought the Nader 
was last week where Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I hate to talk about her, I don't think we we can play Maniacal Laughter as her official clip from now on, but she goes up to AOC, you know, this video services of she yelling insults through AOC's door, and AOC, of course, gets all worked up, and all the cable coverage was the two least important members of Congress as far as power to get anything legislated, barking at each other, and they each went off off the cable heat in the news they got, and each raised a million bucks. It's like the most useless moment in politics. Let me say a couple of things about this. Uh, first of all, uh, she chased AOC down a hall, and AOC kept walking, okay, because she understood what Marjorie Taylor Greene was up to. Secondly, you do a real disservice. I understand this is like a Republican trope, but you do a disservice to AOC when you kind of put them in the same box. The fact of the matter is that AOC is a serious person. You may not think that everybody in the country should have health coverage, but it's not a, a ridiculous position to say that. No, no, you, you no. Know, let, you let, me, let me clarify because I, mean, I know what you're she saying. Has, she has yeah, yeah, yeah. a serious— I, I totally get it. Okay, all right. Okay. Let, let me say, and I've said this last week, I think— um, I totally give the behavior fine to Green, who in my view ought to be in a box shipped out of town. I don't blame AOC, but there is, she did also on the fundraising side exploit it too. Now, that said, she is more serious than Green, but I think she's wrong about everything and she's occasionally demagogic about it. So, no, I don't have a big respect shrine here to AOC, but there's a huge difference between her and Green. I will totally say that. There's a huge difference in qualitatively. Whether you agree with the solution to the climate change, she has a policy idea. Whether you agree with uh, universal coverage as a problem or a challenge, she has a policy, whether it's the right or wrong one. You have two things, and I, don't want, I really don't want to talk about Congresswoman Green anymore. One, she identifies Jews as starting forest fires out west, and two, wearing masks are like the Holocaust. She has a problem with Jews, and she better go figure it out. Second, the Republican Party has a problem with her. They have a problem with Matt Gates. They don't do anything to deal with these people in a fundamental, moral-centered world, and yet they get rid of Liz Cheney because she had the audacity. Oh yeah, to say what I, and that part. And and here's the thing: Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to talk about infrastructure, they're going to talk about free community college, they're going to talk about universal pre-K. You may say, okay, that's all wrong or that's different, but that's a hell of a lot closer to where the American people live their lives than than literally penalizing Liz Cheney and trying to figure out how to restrict voters. And relive and relitigate whether 2020 actually occurred free of fraud. And I'm sorry, the Republican Party is not is missing their own historical moment, caught in their own dilemma. And the Democrats are moving forward to talk to where the American people are, even when they're a little off from addressing it uh, completely, like you would say. The whole QAnon movement is an anti-Semitic movement. Yes, and like a lot of the fringe crazies that grew out of Trump world. That is a meme, you know, remember Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. uh, but but having said that, I, I think we should point out that, you know, there's been attacks launched by Republicans against Democrats, particularly in the wake of uh, the latest battle in the Middle East, you know, for being not supportive of Israel and therefore being anti-Semitic, which I don't think the two are equivalent. But it does make it harder for Republicans to go on that attack when they're mute on Marjorie Taylor Greene. And this is, in certain ways, it's a microcosm of their bigger problem, which is they're a captive of their sort of lunatic fringe, and it prevents them from going to where they want to go. Right, two points. One is the Republican Party is uh, selective on certain issues. They, uh, Marjorie Greene is hurting them 
There's also uh, the fact is when you look at kind of other comments from going back to when you go back to Virginia five years ago, when they said the Jews will not uh, run us, the Republican Party, because of Donald Trump, unleashed a set of forces are the darkest forces when it comes to Jewish identity, which is why the number one attacks on a religious group are Jews in the United States. Number two, Max Boat in the Washington Post yesterday, I thought had a very good column on this as it relates to Biden and a kind of a balanced, even approach. When you look at what Ronald Reagan said, you look at what George Bush 41, 43 had done, Gerald Ford going back, um, uh, he went back to Dwight Eisenhower. They always had a balanced approach. Yes, we're going to defend Israel's right to defend itself. But when it comes to the peace process, we're going to be a, a, uh, a trusted uh, middle player in bringing the parties together. And each of those presidents, whether it was Jim Baker when he sent to Israel, when you're serious about peace, here's my phone number. And he gave out the White House phone number. When Ronald Reagan sent out, uh, basically supported selling AWACS to Saudi Arabia, every Republican president had a balanced approach, which is no different than where Joe Biden has been as support to Israel. And the Republicans acting as if you have to be 100% either with Israel or you're not for Israel is totally baseless. Well, part of the problem is Bibi has become a partisan Republican prime minister of Israel, which is not in the Israeli interest. And you see the fracture now. The other problem is on the Democratic left, the identity squad is is not in the, in the, the equal treatment balance it thing there you know the palestinian cause is real resonance there and that's causing stresses in the democratic party but bb in my view is a lot of the problem because he's is posturing with the republicans has uh, has enabled their worst instincts well listen you we we saw it up close and personal um you know when we were in washington uh, uh ram and uh and i but but i you know i just want to make clear i mean there is no doubt that you know, when you have rockets raining down on you, you have a right to defend yourself. The question is, are we going to keep coming back to this again and again? Because uh, the policy never changes relative to the Palestinians. Are, are we going to resolve this issue? And, uh, you know, or, or, you know, and, you know, I've said it a million times. It's and and I, and I think Ram would agree with this. You You cannot survive as a Jewish democratic state. And you know, govern over five million people in occupied territories who have no political rights and who are, you know, uh, you know, in 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 deep distress. That has to be resolved, and that's a legitimate point. And to say that is not anti-Israel. Uh, to to pretend that that isn't a problem to me is not in Israel's interest. Yeah, and all the real experienced Israeli national security people will admit, at least privately, that that is the fundamental problem. Until the Palestinians have something valuable worth losing, there can't be negotiation. There's only desperation. But because we're political hacks, we'll do a special episode next week where we solve the Middle East. Uh, in the meantime... <laughs> but we're Murphy, but I, w- I wanted to ahead. wind up to something. I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to purge myself and, get, and say what I wanted to say. But right. the other thing is, does any of this matter? This has been leading the news. It's a very serious matter. Do people care about, I mean, as a voting issue, as a political issue, as an issue, getting back to the initial discussion, I don't know that anybody cares about, you know, I, obviously people care, but I mean, as a broad issue, I think people are very focused on the virus, getting out of the virus, which we appear to be doing, and the economy. And uh, that is what's governing a lot of what's going on right now. And I'm not, you know, 
I, I think people actually should be more concerned about these issues, but I'm not sure they are. As a voting issue, the Mideast will not be a, a midterm voting issue. It just won't, but it is important for America's reputation, prestige, and leverage around the world. Number two, look, a year ago, you would not have predicted this is where the United States would be, meaning COVID is in remission and receding to a point that we are literally entering a different stage. And number two, the economy is about to surpass its pre-COVID stage and in a growth area, another thing that Larry noted and other economists have noted, where we're actually going to have a level of employment wage growth and productivity that's unprecedented. Now, how do you seize that opportunity? And one last thing as it relates to election, I think this matters to the midterm. If you had a bet today, the New Jersey governor's race and Virginia's governor's race, which is in November of this year, Biden and the Democrats will be the first presidential party to, looks like today, could change, to win both of those in over 75 years. And that's in the heat of recruitment. Yeah. And the only thing the Republican Party is recruiting for the midterms is Republicans to primary Republicans. They're not spending any time on the quote unquote vulnerable Democrats. And if it wasn't for redistricting, there wasn't be it wouldn't be a play in the Republican Party. I think it's going to be unprecedented. You're going to have Democrats retain New Jersey, Democrats retain Virginia, and Republicans recruiting Republican congressional candidates to primary other Republicans. Now, now you are spinning, though. You, you, because- <laughs> well, let me let me get into the other point for a sec. I agree, it's a secondary issue. I think, and I'm not sure it will be COVID next year. I think new things will come up. Politics is generally forward looking, but in some areas, uh, if you look at Trump's numbers in Florida. He did better in Broward County. He did better in some of the Jewish areas than Republican normal, and that had been a slow trend. I don't know if the mar- – well, the name that shan't be mentioned for her anti-Semitic hate uh, will hurt that or help that, but there are tactical places where in some – Israel has become a bit of a weird wedge issue where there, there are voters who perceive uh, the Republicans are better. I don't know if that will continue now. Well, you, you say the country's going forward, but you just went backward. Well, that's my trick. You know, I'm doing the, what we call the Rahm Emanuel ice skating here. I go forward, I loop back, I vote three times in Cook County, then I shoot forward again. Murph, as a former ballet dancer, at least I do it with grace, not with what you, looks like on you on the ice. I, I guarantee you, you and I will never have a ballet twirl off. I am not that <laughs> foolish. to. That would be called a pas de deux. You were looking for the term that you don't know. That would be the day that we, <laughs> that would, be the day that we would regret being just a podcast and not a not a <laughs> not a video not a show podcast. If you guys yeah, were for the right together. pay-per-view deal, I may put on my old tights. But anyway, look, New Jersey and Virginia are democratic states. Now, the fact that you are going to see Democrats elected there, uh, particularly because they're going to get the best, the most benefit out of the change in the, you know, the end of the virus and the economy. I think that's it's helpful to the Democrat. It's good for the Democratic Party, but I don't know that it's predictive. The challenge for the party, the, the recruiting thing is real. And I and I trust you on that because you did this once. But I don't think, you know, there's a five vote margin in the House and Democrats start in the hole because of the census and because of the, uh, the states that have Republican state legislatures who are going to control the map. So you start in a hole there is a history of the party in office losing seats. It all may be turned on its head. It could be turned on its head. But David, I didn't. I, what I said was you have those two gubernatorial races in the middle of recruitment. I did start by saying the Republicans have three advantages, history, redistricting, 
and restrictive voting. And that's going to be very consequential on the House side. But if you have a popular president, a growing economy and popular policies, that will have an impact also on Senate races and other races. And I do think if you're focused on recruiting a Republican to run against a Republican and not finding a Republican to run against a Democrat in a swing district, you're no, I agree. I, I agree with all that. I agree. You know, with I'll be contrarian, though, on the voting restriction thing. One, we'll see how many places actually pass these bad laws. And mm-hmm. two, there's a backlash, too, which could help the Democrats in an off-year election where minority turnout is always a challenge for them. So I'm not sure that'll, that could be a Republican blunder rather than an evil plot to help them in the end. That would be unbelievable. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Mike, and I know we've talked about this before, using the internet without ExpressVPN is, well, like, it's like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Gotta hate that. You know, you're right, X. And uh, let me just note, we don't do the analogies here, but this one kind of fits. <laughs> the reason you need a VPN or virtual private network is your internet service provider, like Comcast or Verizon, they do a great job of getting you internet, but ISPs like that can sell this information about your website visits to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you for advertising. But ExpressVPN gives you a safeguard. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so your online activity can't be seen by anyone. It's as easy as closing the bathroom door. And then nobody needs to know the Republican sites that Axe has slowly been visiting lately. (laughs) All you have to do is fire up the app and click one button. That's why it's rated number one by CNET, Wired and The Verge. It works on phones, laptops, even routers, so everyone who shares your Wi-Fi, if you have like a housewide connection, can all be protected. It's important. I use a VPN on my home Wi-Fi, so this recording of Hacks on Tap when I send the files, websites I visit for business, and maybe even a bank website, it's all protected in that secure tunnel. So ExpressVPN is really smart internet security. Next, we're going to get you a bathroom door. Anyway, secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash hacks on tap today. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash hacks on tap. And you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash hacks on tap. Let's talk about the popular policies um, and how much of it is is Biden going to get. In some ways, he's the victim of uh, his own success and success that he, you know, uh, the success of the economy, because now you have, uh, you know, California is flush, other states are flush, and that's going to be used against him uh, as he tries to negotiate these further stages of his economic uh plan here, the jobs plan and the family plan. And it looks like this bipartisan negotiation is going by the boards. So I'm wondering what you guys think the score is here and how you think the White House is going to be thinking about this now and how um, McConnell and McCarthy are going to be thinking about him. You know, I'll, I'll plug Romney for a minute. He had a clever idea, which is there's this unspent money piling up from the COVID 
avalanche of cash. And as you say, many state revenues are surging with the economy. Move some of that into the uh, infrastructure spend for the brick and mortar stuff in the states. I thought that was a pretty slick and clever way to find a couple hundred billion. That is a thing right now. That is what the a lot of Republicans are saying now because they don't want to vote for any kind of taxes. Now they've turned against the idea. Remember, Ram, you, you and I, Ram and I were talking about, and I think I talked about it here, the IRS, you know, going after high end tax cheats and beefing up the IRS. The Republicans aren't just for using unspent money because they hate taxes. They're like, there's a pile of brand new, crisp, unspent money. We all agree on infrastructure. We're fighting over how much and what is infrastructure. Why not move the money immediately and maybe save a few bucks? So it's it's not a cynical political move. I think they actually believe it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. I think the mayor over here might have a different view of whether that money should be rescinded from cities and states no no i'm uh, here's my view i think first of all i think cities and states are in different places state budgets are doing unbelievably well if you look at major cities they basically because of the hotel tax sales tax that came from tourism etc they're in a different place but states are the bulk of infrastructure dollars and giving them the uh, latitude to reapply those dollars towards uh critical infrastructure would be a real smart way to both politically and policy wise to bridge differences of where you are on spending for an infrastructure deal. Uh, But I think it's nutty uh, where I know you're going with this head. You have people, Republican IRS chiefs, who basically said there's about $300 billion. It comes from the same concept. Well, wait, hold the thought. Let's hear the ad, and then you can put a button on it. If Joe Biden gets his way, they're coming. IRS agents. Biden's massive tax increase plan includes a staggering $80 billion to help recruit an army of IRS agents. Agents aggressively coming for every dime they can grab at your house and at our small businesses. The new America, where congressional Democrats want to defund the police and Biden wants to add thousands of IRS agents. Call Congressman Cartwright and tell him to oppose Biden's punishing tax plan. I hear Taylor Green did the uh, goose stepping soundtrack. <laughs> by the way, that was her contribution. Hey, what do you think about the uh, sto- the uh, IRS stormtrooper approach there, Murphy? Uh, people don't like rich people dodging taxes. Yeah, but look, I, I I think it's like most political ads now. So much overkill, it's bad advertising. Mm-hmm. But it's not a bad offense in suburban high income district where. They're afraid of taxes. I mean, when Biden wants to be FDR, he does open up a big tax and spend debate with these numbers, and the Republicans can't find offense there, although this was pretty damn clumsy. Forget the uh, lack of aesthetic quality to that ad. Yes. It was pretty yes. horrible. But the fact is, over 60% of the Republicans are against corporations not paying their fair share and wealthy not paying their fair share. And you could take this very topic, and I wrote a piece about this, and, and get, this, I think, um, people, Republicans are missing this. This is the, uh, making sure that corporations wealthy pay their fair share is unbelievably popular now with a new Republican Party that's built on Trump's base. And if you want to have this fight, let's have it. So I would be to the Democrats, engage that subject. Let's go and start listing the companies that paid zero in federal taxes when your tax bill has gone up because of the Republicans uh, cap on state and local deductions. Let's go after the fact that wealthy people buy line share aren't paying any federal taxes. And in fact, is your taxes go up? This, I'm, I'm for this fight. I think we can win the tax fight for the first time in a long time because it's targeted at those who've been cheating. 
Yeah, if you can control the terms of the debate, and that's yeah. going to be what it's all about. Well, the Republicans just engaged it, so there's only one way to control it. Go at yeah, it. Yeah, but, you know, Biden does want more IRS money, and that's what the Ed's about, and my guess is that cuts in the right districts more for the R's and D's. So you guys got to widen it to soak millionaires, get free stuff millionaires pay, and then they're going to come back, and people are cynical about taxes. Oh, come on, it starts millionaires will eventually get to you, and that'll be the fight. If you move the debate to fairness, we win. If it's about an increase, you guys have the better advantage. Totally. Agree. Well, that's the. I mean, it is a battle of definition. I mean, yeah. the Republicans want to talk about big spending and high taxes. They don't want to talk about what the spending is on, uh, by and large, or who's going to pay the taxes. And on this one, they don't want to. You know, this they've they've made very clear they're targeting the top what six or eight percent of taxpayers, not the small business and house uh, that uh, was menaced uh, menaced in this ad, but. You would agree, though, the polling is really clear. Yes. There was, uh, and therefore, there's only one way to win this, which is engage it and define it. Yeah. Or pull it back from four and, or six and a half trillion, one and a half World War II's in spending. But that's a, another debate, which we'll have. I do think it's interesting for the Republicans because Rom's right. The Republican base now is a, you know, it's a, a populist working class base and to grow, they need to expand into the suburbs. And so, Mike, you're going after one target, but the base of the party is somewhere else. Yeah, but the what the leadership thinks, the current view, is feed the base red meat on Fox about all the flying saucers or secret Biden vote-stealing machines, but move the general election to the old Republican hits of tax and spend, which Biden is opening up a huge hangar of opportunity for. And then, you remember, you guys both know these big bills, of course, they test well. But then when you drill down, well, what's in the fine print? Oh, if you're an African-American farmer, you get your mortgage paid off for free. That was on the front page of the paper the other day. And if you're in an exurban district, that's uh, that's going to be a cutting issue against them. So it's the dangerous details in the, in the bumper sticker popular stuff that is where the Republicans want to fight this out. And there's a lot of ammo in that proposal. Now, who knows? I still think it's going to get hammered down a bit into something that might be better for Biden because it's not as uh, wide. But that's what this week is going to be about. We'll find out. Yeah, well, that's that's what I want to ask. Like uh, at the end of this week and at the end of this year, how much of this is going to get done? And uh, what is uh, what is Brother Manchin going to do uh, here at the end of the day if there is no deal uh, with the Republicans? Yep. Uh, and they have to go the uh, reconciliation route, which is, I think, where, uh, you know, a lot of Democrats want it to head. You see the restiveness right now. So, uh, well, that's because of the clock. The sand is running down out of the dial, out of the dial there. And I, you know, the most interesting thing in the politically on both Did you say the Sanders is running out of the dial? No, the, the, I said the oh. sand. The oh, sand. It was a sand dial. I do think. <laughs> don't worry. There's a part of Biden's program for free hearing aids, yeah, even for yeah. millionaires. So you're <laughs> fine. No, think, no. I was making a little joke, you guys. No, you, no, ba- yeah. no battery in Axelrods. Uh, I would say this, which is two weeks ago, there was a report that uh, on a Saturday, the president spent about an hour on the call with Jess Manchin. And to me, having spent a little time in the Oval Office when you're getting ready for the big battle, Biden knows that this week before they go on their memorial recess and then a stretch into July 4th, this is critical time-wise. If anything's about to come, 
And my guess is there was a clearance of signals between the two of them, which is how hard Biden's going to push, knowing full well that he has Manchin support. And if he gets it, great. If he doesn't, that Manchin knows that he uh, did more than just a, a gentleman's try here and that he has his support as a president. And to me, whatever happened on that phone call is the most telling phone call and telling communication between the president and a senator about what the next six months are going to be on his agenda. So you're confident that that uh, Manchin will be on the reservation if they have to go the reconciliation route? I am. Uh, well, not, not, I'm not part of that call. Was I would love to have been a fly on the wall, but I am confident that the president of the United States made a series of um, verbal commitments about trying to get bipartisanship and a deal. And that uh, he also then secure, if I was there, probably then secured from Manchin, that if I can't get it, I got to know that you're standing by me, that I'm going to give you, I'm going to own the the negotiations for bipartisanship. I got to know that you are my soulmate for investing in America. But I wonder how many how many magic beans Manson will give them, which is, all right, I'll go spend $600 billion more on infrastructure than I want to. But then you've got your other, your other more welfare-y stuff coming later. I don't know if you'll have that Manson check all the way, but you're right. That's the conversation. Although the state of West Virginia is probably going to benefit more from all of it than almost any other state. Oh, in the hell, country. they're going to get a naval base. Are you kidding? We'll be building aircraft carriers there. Even without him trying to woo uh Wu Mansion, just given the socioeconomic uh situation in West Virginia, a lot of the stuff and the economic needs of West Virginia, a lot of the stuff Biden's proposing is going to benefit West Virginia disproportionately. That's something that that he has to balance. But uh you know this is something a lot of Democrats miss. You see people saying, well let's stop playing with the Republicans, you know, they're gonna lead us down the you know it's Lucy and the football again. Or is it Charlie Brown in the football? But anyway, it's somebody in the football. All three, but and and, uh, <laughs> and and we should just we should just move forward. If you don't have fifty votes in the Senate, there's no moving forward. So Mansion is the key, and Cinema behind him. Had Donald Trump dealt with McCain different, who knows how John McCain would have dealt with the ACA healthcare vote? Okay, when Bill Clinton was going forward on the budget, he had a conversation with Bob Kerry. Actually, pulled him out of a movie theater. Yeah. Every president has somebody. No, no, that he was trying to hide. And the yes. fact of the matter is that it's, it is very smart that the Biden White House weeks before things happen, not when it's with the vice is on weeks beforehand on a Saturday, put the president on the phone with Manchin for one hour to discuss the play for the next six months. And in my view, that is one of the most important calls that got made. You know, a week ago, I thought they were moving to the kind of mansion brokered $1.2 trillion compromise on infrastructure and shoved the other stuff for a straight vote if they can get mansion later. Now, I think, and this is back to something Rom said a little earlier, they want to fight. Both sides think they can win the fight. Biden doesn't want to give up his soft human infrastructure, home health care spending, and all that stuff. And the Republicans want to fight over that. So the incentives now to trim it down, both sides are thinking they can win. So that's 1914. And so I'm, I, I think it may be down to the teens uh, to appease Manchin where he'll try to find a little cover. But I'm, I'm less optimistic now because I think Biden thinks he can win a fight over some of that stuff. And I think the Republicans think they can win a fight opposing it politically in the midterms. Yeah. 
And I think the Republicans are right, I hate to say, because I'd rather have the bipartisan thing. McConnell uh, has made it very clear that he, d- you know, he doesn't want something to happen. I don't know. It could be. I, it could be that Republicans can marshal something in the midterms uh, around this, but they also could be the party that stands in the way of everything that people want and have no ideas of their own. The fact is, in a midterm, the biggest factor for the incumbent party is presidential standing. There is a floor under Biden if the economy is doing really well. Put aside Murph's worry now all of a sudden about inflation. In 1982, well, in, in that? That, that, that was a drive-by Murph at your head, okay? In 1982, when Reagan lost 28 seats, the economy was still in a recession. 94 for Bill Clinton. That's also true for 2010 for Obama. The quote-unquote experts said the recession ended, but the recovery had not begun. You're going to have a number for Biden in this midterm. The Republicans, in my view, are still looking at 2020, can't get past it. And in the parts that they want to fight, like tax fairness on corporations that don't pay, Democrats should welcome that fight. All right, we've got to settle this Chicago style. I uh, I challenge you to a bet, Chicago deep dish, you pick which place, I would say Pekoi, versus Tepanaki uh, on the House. I think the Republicans are going to win it because I don't think the Biden situation will be as good based on policy uh, in in a year. I do. I think they're going to remember what COVID was like and what Trump was like and the economy was like, and that's our job to tell them and how much Biden has led us out to let us to a better promised land, and the Republicans refuse to co- cooperate. I'm, look, I know what redistricting can do. I know what history could do in restricted voting. We, we're talking like the House is the only thing. There's a Senate that's up, and the Republicans have as bad a terrain in the Senate as Democrats have in the House. No, no, I agree with that. The Senate's tougher. Well, OK, it is tougher, but no one's going to no one's going to blow the doors off in the Senate. Wait, I want What did you bet him? What were you going to house? I want to bet on the house. It's kind of a sucker bet because I like Chicago pizza. I know. But what but what is the what what is the food item? Axelrod wants to come to the food. He hears food. He got excited. Yeah, yeah he's in either way. <laughs> win win for him. If he's overseas, maybe I can get the meal. In his place. Oh, that's true. You could work. It would be just like yeah. voting in, in Cook County. <laughs> you, you could you could be in his place. He's, he's overseas. No reason to waste a fine vote. I'm going to be your proxy, man. All right. Let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. You know, Axe, whether it's for work or play or dutifully listening to this magnificent Hacks on Tap podcast, a lot of us are going to be on the move again this summer, and we don't want to miss our favorite programs or music. I mean, we're going to New Hampshire, live free or die, where we we hide from Democratic income taxes all summer long. And where are you going? I enjoy your home state of Michigan in the summer. Wherever you go, what you want to bring with you for the music, for the sound, are those Raycon earbuds. Look, I have some. A pair fell off the truck here at Hacks on Tap. Chicago style, as the mayor would say. I've been using them, and they're great. Good sound, fantastic battery, light, comfortable in the ear. you got to check these out. Whether you're listening to Beethoven or Billie Eilish, a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears can make all the difference. You get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands, which really appeals to Mr. Live Free and or Die. Raycons <laughs> look great and feel even better. They come in a range of cool colors and with customizable gel tips included for a comfortable in-ear fit. The fit's good, huh, Murphy? Yeah, even if you have a weird ear canal like I do, kind of a gift from the gods, the gel adjusts. They're, they're very comfortable. And then, you know, they don't cost as much as the high-end fancy uh, brand that you may be familiar with. So they're reliable. They have a compact charging case. They work by Bluetooth. I have no trouble 
connecting them. They're solid. So listen up, you guys. Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for our listeners. And here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash hacks. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. And it's such a good deal, you'll want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash hacks. Buyraycon.com slash hacks and then send me a note thanking me for the amazing 24-hour battery life. One of the best parts about them. We shouldn't move on to the mail before we talk about the fact that today is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. And it's been a tumultuous year and a very momentous one for the country uh, relative to this issue of race. And I'm wondering what you think the impacts politically have been of Floyd. How has it changed American politics or has it changed American politics? I think it kind of has, but... Well, it it, it is it has been big and important. I think there's been an awakening, which is a good thing. Uh, There is so much work to be done. Progress has been made, but it's a clear reminder that we're nowhere near where we ought to be. I think it has also just created more political turbulence. I wish I could say it had been a, you know, huge step forward for politics, but politics kind of moves sideways and incrementally. On one hand, um, you know, there could be a good piece of somewhat bipartisan legislation coming out of this. On the other hand, in local politics, there is a movement now to defund the police. I don't think it's the sole cause, but crime is skyrocketing, violent crime. There's a piece today in the Wall Street Journal about it that's quite depressing. No one's defunded the police. The only, the only, not federally, but in the states only, they have. In the Austin only group and that's profited from defund police have been Republican candidates who who inflated that's not true, it in David. Uh, November. I can, I'll send you the stats. In city budgets, the police are being funded significantly less. Austin being the the biggest example right now. Here's the the truth is on the one year anniversary, society and the culture have changed and the economy in some ways have changed faster and more significantly than the politics. Because you still have Republicans, even while uh, this is one year, not moving on police reform and more importantly, as or equally of value, actually trying to restrict voter access. I would not think that after a year later that the party that actually helped pass the Voting Rights Act uh, and actually reaffirmed it many, many times. So I think society-wise, culture-wise, economy-wise, there's been tremendous progress in the last year. Not enough, but more significant if you measure it against how politics, in my view, is somewhat at one level nationally at least stagnant uh, in addressing some real serious issues. Yeah, well, we'll see. They're negotiating right now. Uh, hopefully, there'll be some federal bill uh, on, uh, on on policing. People were sounding an optimistic uh, note today. But, you know, I was looking at a poll. I was looking. Yeah, well, I, just, uh, I talked to the speaker about this and others. You look, not in lieu of, but is a contribution while they're negotiating the police thing. You know, there's the burn grants that cities and police departments apply for and the cop grants. They should prioritize de-escalation training using those funds through, uh, you have 12,000 police departments across the country, to help fund the training on de-escalation, which would both be a good policy. Police departments want to do it, don't have the resources. And rather than buy a computer or something else or some other equipment, 
use those buckets of resources that exist today at the Department of Justice to actually start to implement already de-escalation training across the country. All right. That's the policy section of our (laughs) Is anybody still listening? Yeah. There was a poll today uh, that I saw today. I guess it came out a couple of days ago on this, on some of these things revolving about around race. Do you support or oppose the Black Lives Matter movement? That number is, uh, it's not where it was uh, at the beginning of the year, but still uh, more positive than negative, 47-40. Not surprisingly, uh, you know, uh, white support is up, but from from in the past, but uh, still whites negative, blacks more positive. But you look at two, two numbers caught my eye among uh, voters 18 to 34, uh, two to one support the Black Lives Matter movement, which tells you sort of where the future uh, is on some of these uh, on some of these race issues. And then uh, the one that was a little disquieting was, as you might expect, uh, Republicans almost universally negative and Democrats, uh, you know, largely po- almost universally positive. Uh, I think 83% of Republicans oppose the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, 87% of Democrats support it. This has become, uh, you know, er- it goes into that tribal funnel uh, of, uh, of American politics. And um, I just hope we can find some common ground on this issue. Anyway, go ahead. No, I would say it always boils down to one big tough question. Are we moving forward or backward? And after four years of moving backward, we're moving forward again. You may say not fast enough, but we are. Taking both this issue and you know, we're, I, some of the other issues we talked about, I actually think while there's a lot of things that kind of split the country, one of the things that's kind of always underpinning them is either educational attainment or generational. And a lot of people look at different aspects uh, of things, but when you look at it, whether it's on the economy, whether it's on race, whether it's on a particular topic with policing, educational uh, uh, status or attainment, and second, generational, really change how you look at any one topic. And those are the things that uh, I think one of them you can actually uh, have an impact on, which is education which is why Biden's proposals, I think, to me, are so significant. I think it's time to hit the mail. It's listener mailbag. All right, if you got a question for the hack, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That is hacksontap at gmail.com. And when you listen to the podcast, you can rate it on all the platforms. Even on Apple Podcasts, you can email it to friends. So please give us a rating, give us a comment, insults, attack rom, anything you want to do. Uh, <laughs> it helps us with the podcast to get this thing going. Uh, and real quick, we didn't have time to get to the thugs in Belarus, but we're with the freedom there. We'll talk about it next week. Don't take that damn airline their airline. All right. This one is for Axe from John. So what can Biden and the Democratic Party, namely party chair Jamie Harrison and DCCC head Sean Patrick Maloney, what a tremendous name, do differently than the Obama administration in terms of securing and with any luck expanding sub-presidential Democratic offices? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair question. I think if you asked uh, President Obama what one of his uh, you know, regrets was, were about uh, the uh, is it was or were but the the about the eight years he was in office it was that uh, 
you know, we had a lot to focus on and we didn't focus as intensely as we should have on local offices, on state legislative races, on uh, down ballot races, which are the wellspring of future governor and Senate candidacies. Uh, we lost a lot of state houses. Uh, we've gotten some of that back. And part of it is because of his efforts, along with Eric Holder, to uh, uh, to, to get into the state's uh since he left office. But uh, there's no doubt that uh, I think that the party has to make much deeper investments in uh, those kinds of campaigns, in state legislative campaigns, in uh, uh, in down-ballot races, has to take a much deeper interest in those and, and share resources that are necessary in terms of uh, databases and fundraising and so on uh, with candidates up and down the ballot. But, uh, and, and this is a project that, you know, is really essential and all you have to do is look at redistricting uh, to know why. Okay, for his honor, a question from Ian, and Ian wants to know, here's his question, quote, Mike talks a lot and a lot and a lot, but quite brilliantly, about the Republican Party <laughs> failing to broaden its coalition of voters. I'm doing a little editorial improvement here. Ah, I see. But what should Democrats be doing to broaden their coalition? It feels like their success at the moment is largely dependent on the personalities of two men, Biden and Trump. But are they clear about what is the right policy platform to win elections in a post-Biden-Trump world? I want to give you a compliment on that reading and adding uh, your insights. Uh, you, I, feel like, I feel like you're uh, from the editing room at the Department of Justice. Um, here's what I would, <laughs> here's what I actually think both parties are in a major transition to a different coalition. Uh, you've seen it most pronounced. Uh, if you think, go back to Ronald Reagan, where Reagan Democrats were, you know, kind of working class coming into the party. That is the dominant force now in the Republican Party. It's not just a piece of it. It is the Republican Party, which is why McCarthy, McConnell are so intimidated by Donald Trump and his accolades that control the party. Two, I think the Democrats are in the middle of a process. And one of the most important things in the, that happened in this election was the fact that uh, you continue to see college educated voters, regardless of where they live, but primarily in the suburbs swing into the Democratic column and a group of voters that what I would talk about as Biden Republicans becoming more and more associated with either A, the independent category or B, Democrats at a local level and distancing themselves from a Republican Party that's dominated by the personality of Trump. And I think the policies that Joe Biden, and this gets back to what we just talked about on the show, take on the issue of tax fairness, et cetera, that works with not only Democrats, independents, but a good third of the Republican Party. And to me, that's how you advance uh, policies that broaden your coalition and give you a competitive edge, both in congressional races, Senate races, and in other types of geography that we hadn't had before. Yeah, I think, listen, I just want to add to this. Joe Biden won by 7 million votes, but his actual margin because of the electoral college was 44,000 in three states, uh, Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin. And Democrats delude themselves if they think that they can carry uh, the electoral college uh, and write off, completely write off small towns and rural areas. And, uh, you know, Democratic Party is becoming more and more a professional a yes. party of professionals and elites and uh who uh you know the still party still sees itself as the party of working 
people, but they don't always uh, speak respectfully uh, to working people. They don't uh, always listen uh, uh, very well to working people. Our friend James Carville made this point not uh, long ago, and he's absolutely right about that. So, I, I, you know, well, yeah, I agree, Ron, there's opportunities there, but if Democratic Party, if the Democratic Party writes off, completely writes off small town and rural America, if the Democratic Party uh, is the party of working people, but they don't, you know, there's an old expression about liberals who love humanity but hate people. You don't want to be that. <laughs> you don't want to be that. And so uh, I think that is a real that that is the challenge for the Democratic Party is how do you Absolutely. speak to people and cross these cultural, uh, you know, and defuse some of these cultural bombs that are out there uh, that, uh, you know, could 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 blow the party up. Democrats would not have won the election but for Joe Biden. And I was a skeptic of Biden at first just because of age. Uh, but it turns out that an old white working class guy from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who did not look down on people who work with their hands and work with their backs and treats everyone with dignity, was exactly what they needed uh, to win this election. But you're not going to have that every four years or even in four years. There's three things that did not get analyzed in this last election that are a telling sign. One was not just Trump becoming the dominant force in the party, but he did better with Latino and Asian voters and some elements of the African-American community than we want to acknowledge. Two, That's true. That, that, is a, that true. has been a that part unexplored. Second for our party, while our trend lines have continued, not only among college-educated women of all uh, racial or ethnic backgrounds, but for the first time, we also won that among men, which had always been a laggard. Uh, for the Democrats. And to me, that's another telling sign, which is also a threat to the Republican Party uh, of what, uh, as I still believe, we're in the middle of a great transition. If you listen to the question, where are we going to be post Biden and post Trump? And the good news is, I think Biden's laying the groundwork for a sustainable coalition. I think Trump's laying the groundwork for a shrinking Republican Party that shrinks faster. Sorry, I nodded off. I'll just say it quickly. You guys need more white men, less kale, more sirloin. Biden is the model. And the problem is there aren't a lot of Bidens coming up in the party. You need to grow some more and quick. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. And Carville had the best line, Ram, when he said that uh, the Democratic Party has to speak less less Hebrew and more Yiddish. Yeah, and coming from a guy that nobody can understand, that means a lot. <laughs> yeah, right. He's trying out all kinds of languages. <laughs> anyway, Mike Murphy. Yes. Jack wants to know what, in your opinion, Murphy, is the funniest zinger, because we know how funny you are, you've ever introduced into one of your Republican candidates' speeches. Well, first of all, we all know they all write their own material because they're brilliant. Yes. And my job is to hand them the note card and make sure there are no typos. <laughs> and Jack, maybe that is my nephew, Jack, down in Atlanta. Hi, Jack. Maybe not. Uh, well, let's see. I'll tell you one story, though, where I earned my money. I was doing the Schwarzenegger recall, having a lot of fun with Arnold, and we would do these big rallies. We could actually draw a crowd, these outdoor things, get four or 500 people or more, and Arnold would do a stump, and then he would throw Join Arnold, our campaign T-shirts, which we went through about a million, into the crowd with a pretty good you know, football throw over the cameras, which were always a lot there, and the crowd would go nuts. So we had a great event, very visual, uh, happy because California is often about TV news, not so much about print. 
And he's walking through the crowd. There was, you know, the advances set up kind of a runway with cameras moving with them. It looked fantastic. And some joker, and actually you've never given me a believable alibi, throws an <laughs> egg at him, which splatters all over his his kind of, he had this campaign, like, varsity jacket joint Arnold he'd wear. And, of course, being Arnold, he didn't feel it. You know, he's just this moving tank. Uh, but we get to the end, and I'm like, Christ almighty, now we're going to get the egg thing on TV for three days after the perfect event we planned to duplicate. So Arnold said, I got to, he had the right instinct. I, I, you know, we can't have that. And I just had a moment. I said, go out. They're going to ask you and just say, well, I didn't feel it, but I think the guy owes me some bacon and have a big laugh. <laughs> and so Arnold pivoted, went out there. What about the egg? You know, the media's going crazy like it's Pearl Harbor. He goes, I didn't even feel it, but the guy owes me some bacon. <laughs> and it turned into a great TV bite we had for three days. And, you know, it was just just a lucky moment where, where we had the right thing to say at the right time. Right. And it was truthfully All Arnold's right. delivery. Clearly, he did not have an Orthodox Jewish consultant that would have worried about the kosher comments there. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It was uh, <laughs> what really worked was Arnold sold it. And he, Arnold, I'll tell you, he understood the performance role of this. I'll, one fast story. So Ram, by the way, would have sent him out there asking for locks, but go ahead. <laughs> no, no. The Democrats will go out there and say hate crime. We all need therapy. Let's say everybody <laughs> kneel down or have a quick moment of unity. Don't mention God. Uh, was an animal hurt? Was the chicken wounded? So we're, we're in a bus leaving a big rally because we do the big, and Arnold's in his old egg jacket, now freshly dry cleaned. And this was when he was elected. And he's hanging out the door waving in the bus stalls. And he kind of turns, looks at me under his voice and goes, move the damn bus. I'm the action governor. There can be no stalling. And, you know, he's right. He knew the visual metaphor of the thing. And that was a superpower he had from the movies that really helped him. All right. Good stories. Good to see you guys from Good the to bunker. See you, great to see you, Mr. Mayor. Nice to see you, Merv. We're looking for great things from you, and uh, we will be back uh, next week with more tales from the road, more Murphy tales from the road. And uh, everybody have a good week. Absolutely. Take care, Axe. Be safe, Rom. See you. See you, brother. See you, Rom. <laughs>